This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 202. I'm diving in with the co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method, Lauren Staubel. Lauren and I created the SEP method and researched it across the U.S., and we're writing a book on it now. And in this episode, we're diving into how to emotion coach the tiny humans. We get asked questions, literally this, what do we do in the moment? How do we show up for them? How do we emotion coach? So here is, folks, Lauren and I are diving into the deep end with you here. If you want more support with this, I have a free emotion coaching guide that walks through these steps with you. And it's tangible, printable PDF to give you this overview. You can head to emotioncoachingguide.com and snag that bad boy for free. All right, folks, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Welcome to Voices of Your Village. I'm super jazzed today because I get to bring you guys my co-creator of The Method. Hi, Lauren. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to Voices (laughs) of Your Village. Thank you. I'm very excited. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of how you wound up here? Sure. Um, In the early 2000s, I finished with a studio art degree and had no idea that I was going to end up working with young children. Um, a friend of mine said their, uh, their school was hiring an infant teacher. I pictured a room full of cribs with babies laying in them and thought that sounded pretty boring. But I stepped into the infant room and I just started to realize how amazing it was seeing these tiny people developing relationships with each other. Um, and so that's where it all began. Um, and I went back to school for early childhood education Preschoolers has been my passion ever since, and um, and I stay in the field for social justice and more recently emotional justice. Awesome, thank you. And uh, this is where our paths crossed. I was drinking a mimosa one day when Lauren came up and said, "I think we're doing something that's different, and I want to write a book about it. Will you join me?" <laughs> and now here we are couple years later, still on this journey, method, research, book in progress, all the things. But in developing the method, we created five phases of emotion processing that all humans, not just tiny humans, but all humans are going through to process an emotion. Lauren, can you explain to me what it means to really process an emotion? Like what is the difference between that and just like pushing that a little below the surface. Yeah. So um, 
I think it would be helpful to put it in the context of the opposite of it, which is surface acting. So I have a feeling and then I judge it as good or bad. And if I judge it as bad, I don't want to be having it. Then I push it down to be dealt with maybe never. <laughs> um, or I could approach an emotion with mindfulness, recognize that it's there. Maybe I do judge it as good or bad, but then I let go of that judgment and, and just have it. And then we'll go through the phases, but at the end have processed it so that we don't have to keep coming back or shoving it away. Yeah, I love that. It's been a game changer in my own life. I didn't learn how to do this until my 20s, uh, thanks therapy. And the more I learned about these tiny human brains, the more I was like, oh, this is happening in my brain too, <laughs> which was a game changer for me. And now somebody the other day was like, how are you just so calm? And I was like, oh no, I'm just calm right now. <laughs> this isn't me always, but I'm genuinely at this point not taking that anger I felt three days ago and still hanging on to it. It's not living below the surface. And it did for so long for me. So I'm jazzed to share this with the world. Thank you for joining me. Mm -hmm. All right, let's just dive in. Okay. Phase one of emotion <laughs> processing. <laughs> allow. Um, and I think allow is also best defined by the opposite. So if I'm thinking about it for myself, it's either um, I notice I'm having it or I don't. There are a lot of things I can do in order to pretend I'm not having it or um, distract myself from having it, but allowing it is just simply having it, having the feeling. That is huge. I'm really good at like, ooh, I know that I'm having it, but I'm going to scroll on this screen so that I don't feel it because I don't want to feel it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with tiny humans, I think we often will distract them out of the feeling like, oh, they're feeling sad or having expression and we're like, we're going to go get a snack or we're going to, and we distract them out of the feeling because we don't want them to have it because it's hard. It's hard to let somebody else have a feeling too. Yes. Especially if we're worried that they're um, uncomfortable. We're not necessarily comfortable with discomfort. I'm, I'm not, it's not my favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've had, I have to like make myself be like, you've got to sit here in this they need to sit here in this, but it's not a natural go-to. And I think th this is something that parents often bring up to me of like, well, instinctually, my body is saying, make it stop, make their hard feeling stop. And it's extremely difficult to see someone else do what we perceive to be suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's such a good point. And a lot of when a lot of my work is working with folks on trying to decipher what is that kid really communicating with us right now? Not all cries mean the same thing. And being able to decipher that language of cries so that we can respond instead of reacting to make it stop. When we are reacting to make that cry stop, that's for us, not for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> And I get that. I've done it. And I will probably do it again because it's not about perfection here. Uh, we're looking for intention. But all right. Number one, just allowing it to happen. I said just, but it's not usually a just. This is something you got to work at. <laughs> uh, all right. Phase two. So if you have allowed the emotion, now you have a little more sense of agency. You know it's there and you can look for um, a symbol. To associate that feeling with. Um, so we're looking for, if someone is able to do that, that's called recognition. So we can, if we're looking at a child, we could present a picture, we could make a sign, sign language sign, um, or we could just offer the word, or both, or a combination of those things. And then for ourselves, it's the same thing. We're at, we could just think to ourselves, oh, there's a feeling. Oh, and I know the word for that feeling is sad. Probably I would sound more sad. Yeah, and in, yeah, I've shared on here before, but the, like I struggled with anxiety and it, this part was a game changer for me, was learning to recognize what I was feeling when I was like at a 
three or a four or maybe even a five on a one to 10 scale versus like, oh man, now I'm at an eight or nine and just getting used to noticing those feelings early as they were stirring up inside me uh, was a game changer for then being able to navigate anxiety. And I think that we don't expect kids to do this for a long time, but uh, what we've learned in, in our experience with these tiny humans is that it can happen early. And I get a lot of questions about like, well, should we guess at the feeling from the adult perspective if a tiny human expresses? Do we say like, looks like you're feeling sad, especially when they're young and they can't necessarily respond with, no, I'm feeling mad or whatever. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so we already as having a lot more years of experience as humans and feeling stuff, we already know so much more about symbols for feelings than infants do. So even if we take a guess and it's not quite right, we're still offering something. And then um, for us, even as adults, that's powerful because if you're having trouble as the adult allowing a child to express or have an emotion, um, if, if you stop and pause to name it for them, even if it's slightly incorrect, that's going to help you be present and help them move through the processing. I love that. I love it so much. And I like to think of it as like reading where we don't read to infants expecting them to read back to us tomorrow. We read to infants expecting them to read back to us in like six years. <laughs> and for these tiny humans, if they're not hearing this emotional language, where are they going to get it from, right? Like, I think it's our job to be offering those words up so they can start to learn it and learn that emotional library and vocabulary. Absolutely. And I don't think it, it's harmful at all to say as many times as we can, it's not about getting it perfect. Yeah. It's about going through the process and um, being with somebody else through that process. I love it. This is why it's the collaborative emotion processing method. (laughs) We're in this together. All right. So now uh, we let it happen and it's, they're feeling it and we've named it or identified it with some sort of picture or symbol. And now what's next? What's number three? Well, with enough practice and this, this one is going to be totally different depending on who this person is and what their personality is, what their tendencies are, and how um, how their brain is developing. Um, somebody might be able to develop a sense of security with a variety of motion, emotions um, pretty early, and other people, it might take them into their adult years <laughs> to develop this sense of security right my hand just went up that took me a little while (laughs) well and this is the security piece is where if you're struggling with anxiety like I was like that comes back to security if you if I didn't feel I didn't see that oh I'm not going to feel fear for the rest of my life when I was in it it felt like that's where I was going to live yeah and it that can be a really scary place and and we get really can get stuck in one emotion if we forget, which happens all the time, we forget all the time, the idea is that we remember once in a while that I'm having this feeling right now, but I know it's not gonna be forever. This feeling is temporary. Um, This is also related to mindfulness and recognizing I don't have to get attached. Sometimes we get attached to negative feelings or hard feelings. We just get stuck there. We can't imagine life in any other state. But um, if we pause, again, that pausing piece is really important just to remember that it's not always going to be like this. In fact, I might feel a whole different emotion 15 minutes from now. It might be if there's a big, um, a big life event, you're dealing with um, loss or a huge transition, then it might be next week that I feel a different emotion. Um, but we'll get to that. What do yeah. you Yeah, I love that. Um, Can you explain to me then the difference between one and three, right? Of like one is letting yourself feel. How is is three different from that? Oh, um, well, so one is, it is a much more beginner phase 
so you maybe uh, so maybe it looks helps to think about what it looks like on a child so um, a child starts crying but maybe they're starting to cr try cry uncontrollably they're going to need our help in that circumstance but they don't know in that moment that this isn't going to be forever and children are experts in mindfulness whatever's happening right now feels like every moment <laughs> from here on out um, so that security piece is like a, maybe we're going to see it more often in a preschool preschool aged child who's had some practice with this and they're getting sad even if like drop off time is a perfect time to think about this so they're sad right now and they're they might even be crying um, but they're not even reaching out for their teacher's help. They're actually just saying goodbye to their parent and they know they're, they're secure. I, they know I'm, I'm sad right now and it's a natural time to feel sad. My parent is, my at main attachment figure is leaving right now for about eight hours. Um, but they know that they're gonna start playing soon. They're gonna be happy with their friends. Um, so they're, they're actually secure in feeling uncomfortable with the, the goodbye because they know that it's temporary. Yeah, I think that's an awesome example. Um, and I, I think it's most common that we would see it maybe in a preschooler. But I want to note that it can happen younger than that um, it, for folks who are just like, well, do I just wait this out? I, I taught infant toddler. And as you were describing that, I had an image in my head. I had the, we had stairs you could walk up and then a slide you could go down. And there was like a platform at the top of the stairs. And we ended up pushing it over so it was by the window that kids could climb up the stairs and be on the platform and then go down the slide because at drop-off, kids would say goodbye to their parent in my classroom. And then they knew they could go over and they would stand and like wave goodbye and like be in it, not trying to like go and play or be distracted from it. They would watch their parent and say goodbye and feel sad. And when they were ready, then they would move on and and come back and play but they would just stand there and watch them and be in that moment where I think even personally like so many times I'll be like okay let me stop feeling this <laughs> yeah. yeah cool all right number four this one folks is my favorite one and the most missed I think of all of the steps me too me too <laughs> <laughs> um so coping, and there are, you know, humans cope in a variety of ways. Um, some are, you know, our first idea for coping um, can often be related to some kind of need we had as a child, and it might even be by the time we're an adult, it might be a pattern that we don't really think about. It just is some our go-to thing um, in our yoga world. We could call it reaching for something. Um, but it's not really a conscious choice. So that would be a mechanism, a coping mechanism. Um, and it is in the moment, it's gonna give you a lot of relief, but it's also related to the, the surface acting. So, um, so I'm just reaching for something in order to stop that feeling from happening as soon as possible. And to be real, there are some situations in which we, we're not gonna be able to utilize our, our coping strategies right now. So you know, mechanisms, they exist, they're gonna be with us for all of our life. But as often as possible, we wanna choose a coping strategy. So a strategy is something that actually does help you process the emotion, um, calm down and move through it so that you can let go of it and, and get on to the, the rest of, of life, the next emotion. <laughs> Such a game changer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Levine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. I actually did a whole episode on coping because I feel so passionate about this. I think it's episode number 38 if people want to dive in further on just coping. But one of the things that I had to learn and that was a a key element for me is that if we don't teach kids coping strategies, they will develop coping mechanisms. We all will, and that's fine. That's how we survive is by developing coping mechanisms. But strategies usually have to be taught or modeled. And uh, so I had somebody recently ask like, won't my kid figure out what to do with this feeling anyway? They will figure out something, right? So I, I kind of want to dive into some examples of what it looks like in adulthood and then in childhood often to have coping mechanisms versus coping strategies. I know for myself, I one big thing for me was that I wanted somebody to know where I was at all times because I was, that made me feel safe. I felt like if somebody knows where I am, then if something bad is happening to me, someone will know and they'll save me or they'll help me. And so if I left work and got in the car, I would text Zach or I'd call him. And just so that he knew like she's left work, she should be home in about well, in Boston, sometimes an hour, <laughs> in a dream world, 10 minutes. Uh, and and I'm expecting her at this time. So if she isn't, then I should check because maybe something happened to her, right? So that was a coping mechanism I developed to help me feel safe. And I, going into this, before I really dove into this with you, when I thought of coping mechanisms, I thought of like, which are also coping mechanisms, drinking or opioids or like big, very obvious evident coping mechanisms. Can you dive into some that we might see in our everyday life that we might not identify as coping mechanisms? So my go-to, my reach, um, my compulsive reach is solve the problem. Mm. If I have a feeling I don't like the way it feels, I'm trying to get it over with real fast. I try to solve the problem right away, which can get me into some trouble because then I end up doing either I have too much on my plate or that is (laughs) anybody who knows me well knows that's my default. (laughs) Um, So I just jump in and try to solve before I actually allow myself to process. So then I end up in um, a stickier situation as even more feelings to process, but I haven't stopped to process the other one. So I just ran right away from it trying to solve the problem. I think that's probably um, something a lot of people, perfectionists in particular, identify with. Um, Yeah, having trouble sitting still with. Yeah, I love that. And then I was just chatting with a friend of mine the other day who reached out and was like, wait, is obsessive cleaning a coping mechanism? And I was like, it sure is, sister. It sure is. You're doing something because you don't want to feel this anymore. And this makes you feel safe. Or um, especially folks, if you have fear around health or safety, you might see things like uh, obsessive cleaning or obsessive exercise or obsessive dietary challenges where you're focused on like certain diets at certain times or um, kind of what's happening in your body, all coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to note that we all have coping mechanisms and it's fine. And the goal isn't that we rid ourselves of all the mechanisms and we only use strategies. Uh, like you said, there are some times where we're not going to be in a place to tap into a strategy yet. And we still need to survive. Yeah, especially if you're providing caregiving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tiny human. Yeah, exactly. Um, or if you're in something where maybe you did experience loss or um, you're going through something where it might not, you might not process this emotion for a little while, you still can, you tap into coping mechanisms to help you continue to survive while you're working through that. So strategies, what are some coping strategies for adults? Yeah. Um, so the, my favorite because you can access it anywhere, anytime, is breathing. Remembering Mm -hmm. you have a breath (laughs) that you can access, Um, especially belly breathing. So if you, um, when you take a deep breath, if you expand your belly, it actually calms your nervous system. So it's talking to your amygdala and saying, hey, there's actually no real emergency here right now. Um, And it helps you be more present and mindful with your emotions. Um, another one that calms the nervous system is looking at the sky. Um, that's also something that you can most often do. And, and you can actually do both of those things with children, um, which is why I recommend them to my teachers. So um, if you're, even if you're with four toddlers that are unhappy right now, if you take a deep breath with them, then everybody just calmed their nervous system together. Um, so those are, they're free, they're accessible, um, and you don't need anything else besides yourself in order to, to use them, to utilize them. Um, and then there, you know, it really, I encourage people to choose coping strategies that fit their budget. So if you're, if you're an early childhood educator, like a fancy retreat is not a coping strategy for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a coping strategy might be um, a yoga class, or it could be therapy. Um, something that's covered by your insurance would be nice. Um, so think about that. Maybe you do have a fancy income and you can go to retreats regularly. That can be a coping strategy for you. Um, but it's important to think about sustainability for yourself um, when you choose your coping strategies. Totally. And to have a mix, because what if you have a hard feeling and it's not, there isn't a retreat happening right now. Like, what are you going to do with that feeling? Right. So even if that is something that speaks to you and, and it doesn't, I think a retreat can be a number of things. It could be like a night away with a friend or whatever. It doesn't always have to be uh, like all inclusive, whatever, like my mama's getaway weekend. Not everyone can afford that. Um, and that is totally fine. There are other ways that like, if that's something that speaks to you, like getting away with folks, how do you create that and make that happen within your budget? Um, also even just things like reading, got a library card, you can get a book or art expression. Mm -hmm. My husband would draw as a kid or play drums and still does as an adult. A friend of mine who runs Bridge School here in Middlebury, she was on the podcast last year talking about it, but her kiddos have options of sewing at school and other ways to like just be with themselves and using their hands. For a lot of folks, I think sitting still and breathing can feel really uncomfortable until you're used to it and having something that you can do with your hands or with your body while you're breathing can make it more comfortable and something that you can kind of get used to then over time. Yeah, a lot of people use knitting or even just going for a walk. Um, I know for me, um, my <laughs> my mechanisms can be flight, but if I choose how I want to fly, um, it could be, okay, I'm going to walk, just going to walk outside right now, but by myself. I'm not going to try to get somebody to go for a walk with me so I can distract myself from what I'm feeling. I'm just going to keep feeling it, but I'm also going to walk outside by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also maybe it is having somebody come with you like therapy, right? Like having, being able to talk, like it can be 
you might have someone come so that you can talk through it. Both are fine. It's just figuring out what works for you. And one could include distracting yourself away from it, as you said, and the other could be talking about it because that's helpful for you. I think it's also though important to note that like, maybe you're talking through it because you're trying to solve it before you're ready to solve it. It's hard to balance sometimes. <laughs> I think, Alyssa, I think what you're saying is really important. Um, we might not know exactly where we are in terms of processing. And again, it's really not about like getting it perfect. It really is about being engaged in the process rather than pretending like it's not happening or just shoving it down and getting distracted with something else. It's, it really is every time it's gonna be different. And after it's processed, it'll be so clear what just happened. <laughs> but in the moment, it, it doesn't need to feel clear as you're processing. Yeah, I think that is huge. Uh, all right, so say we have coped. This feeling is processed. Now what do we do next? Yeah, we get to move on. How liberating. And that, is, that part is, step five is the number one easiest step if you've gone through the first four. So it really doesn't even matter how you move on. And when you think about like a classroom um, or if you have multiple children, um, conflict resolution is the easiest thing in the world if you've done the other four steps. So. Um, if you could have your family could have a slogan that's you know okay you can use it in five minutes or I'll let you know when I'm done um, that kind of thing and it really doesn't actually matter what you choose or, or you know it's easy to move on if you've done the other things yeah I, I think that's a very important thing to note what I've seen the most is this like maybe even one and two where we're allowing and we're identifying what the feeling is and in recognizing that and then jumping to like, now how do we solve the problem? And one thing that like helped me when I was starting this was noting, okay, if they're whining or they're crying um, or they're still like throwing any sort of tantrum whatsoever, they're not calm yet. They haven't processed. So one of my, actually a teacher that worked very closely to me always used to joke because I would say, when your body and your voice are calm, I'd love to talk about it, right? And that was like almost my reminder of, oh, if their voice isn't calm yet, they're not, they're still in their amygdala, they're still feeling, I don't need to rush this. It's harder to be in it. A lot of the times we can solve their problem. Uh, the kid who is having a hard time getting their boot on to go outside and then throws it and is now having an emotional expression, I could just go get that boot and put it on them and move on. But they're having a hard feeling now and now this is a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. And probably they're gonna throw the boot again tomorrow. <laughs> right. Develop the skills to handle the emotion they had when they got frustrated about how hard it was to put their boot on. Right, right. And my goal long term for these kids is that when they have that feeling again, frustration, disappointment, embarrassment, whatever the feeling is, that when they have it again down the road and we're not there to solve the problem for them, that they can recognize, oh, I know this feeling and I know what to do to process it. I have this toolbox. And if we take that moment away from them where we can teach them that it's safe to feel this and you can learn what it is and you can process it. If we jump to solving their problem, they don't get to build that toolbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that like, we don't get to control what they will experience in life as much as we would all love to. And we would all love to them to only experience happy things that make them feel good. That's not how life will go for them. That's not how life goes for any of us. But we can get back to positive, warm, comfortable feelings if we know how to process the harder feelings. I want to chat a little bit about coping for kids. We talked about it for adults, but let's take a moment to chat about what coping mechanisms might look like for kiddos and then moving into coping strategies and what those might be and also how it looks to move from building from coping mechanisms to building coping strategies. 
Mm -hmm. um, so I think the most common type of coping mechanism for children is distraction. Um, just stopping what you're doing to go to something else. Um, I've just recently been thinking more um, about how race affects coping mechanisms and coping strategies. Um, I've noticed in over my 15 years that um, kids who have, who are, you know, their social identity is part of a group that has more privilege in this culture, um, feel more comfortable expressing. Um, kids who are part, have a social identity of a group of people that's been oppressed or um, has less power in this culture are more quick to shove it down and go do something else because um, it's not worth going through the process with this kid who's doing the big expression. Um, then the kid that's doing the big expression often just ends up with a lot of control over what's happening in the room. So we're trying to be very intentional about how we help kids who would normally just walk away. They might just be shoving that feeling down and distracting themselves with the next thing, even though they actually felt disappointed. They actually wanted to use those ballet slippers or, um, or that truck, um, but they, they gave it up because they, maybe they didn't have the, the strategies to help them move through that feeling and then be able to get to the problem solving, moving on part. Um, so helping, helping that child stay with the situation um, so that they can, you know, get to be right there with them so that they can develop those strategies. So they might not even have the words yet for the feeling that they're having. Um, they're not even allowing it to happen. So we have to start at the beginning if that's happening. At least give them the chance to express their emotions. Um, just like we said at the beginning, we can't be sure what they're feeling. We really are guessing based on body language and behavior to figure out when somebody's, when we're just starting out with allowing, how we're gonna proceed or what we guess they might be feeling. So with that child, I might guess they're feeling disappointed or, um, or maybe sad. You know, we, we do, our brains give us a lot of information about how other people are feeling based on body language. Um, so once that child is able to identify how they're feeling, they might not be ready to stay and solve the problem yet. They might not be ready to build strategies. So we're just going to stay in that naming the emotion. Once they're comfortable naming the emotion, then um, they might, we might be able to build their vocabulary so that they can name more than just that emotion. Um, and then we get to the coping strategies part where we can say, all right, you can act, we can give them a phrase. They might not even know the phrase. I was still using that. Or maybe the phrase is, um, I felt angry when you took that toy from me. Um, it's, a, it's a communication tool. Communication is also a good coping strategy. Um, so those are some preschool aged examples. I imagine you have more toddler examples. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was actually picturing this little girl who was in my room and anytime somebody took something from her or even like pushed her body, she would acquiesce and she didn't know, how, she didn't have the language to say, that hurts my body, please don't push me or I'm still using that, right? Like she didn't have those tools yet and we would have to help her, we would have to advocate for her in order for for her to build that right like right alongside her letting her know it is okay to say this or to feel this and you mentioned race and I also think that this comes back to gender as well and there are gender differences here and um I was actually just reading an Instagram post the other day from this woman who was like I'm so angry she's like I just realized she's 30 and she was like, I really just come into this space where I've learned how to say, I'm angry about that. And to be honest, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, I think, when women do this. And I've worked in places where if women speak up and say, this makes me angry or express those hard emotions and how they felt about it, that it people feel threatened by that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very much a gender thing as well. And I think it can start so, so young uh, that we 
and might encourage somebody to be a good girl or a good listener or a good sharer based on gender and being able to identify like, is that a bias that we have? That's fine. But now that you're aware of it, then we can move from there. Um, and you might find yourself something that I had to really get comfortable with that I feel like I'm always trying to get comfortable with is bias and recognizing we all have it. Mm -hmm. And it's okay that we have it. Everybody does, but you have to learn where your biases are without judgment that you're not, you're coming to adulthood and to parenthood or to um, the classroom with biases. Mm -hmm. And um once you can identify them, then you can be mindful of them as you respond instead of react. But identifying what they are is huge. And it might feel embarrassing that you're like, oh, I do have a bias about who I'm, allow I'm allowing to feel what. Yeah, you can actually, you can go online. If you um, search for Project Implicit, you can take the implicit association tests. Um, most people um, who take the tests tell the researchers that they, there must be something wrong with the tests. There's a lot of resistance about the, uh, the biases that people learn that they have. Um, and the idea, the thing about implicit bias is that we don't know we have it. Um, so, and most people have it. You could take tests on race, gender, body type, culture, um, their age, their, uh, they're a really, a lot to choose from um, and but we can't do anything about it unless we know about it so blind spot is one of my favorite books it's a really accessible scientific explanation of implicit bias and how it affects um, rate people of color um, built up bias over time and it's all um, the subtitle is um, hidden bias of good people so the idea is we know culturally, we don't want to be biased. Most people don't want to be biased, but, um, but it doesn't mean we aren't. So once we recognize that we are, we have some something to work with. Um, Mazarin Banaji is one of the authors of that book. And um, she said something to the effect of, you know, our brain is making all these decisions without our consent. And how's that affecting our behavior? So, um, so it is really important when we're going through this to have somebody that's holding you accountable and that you can hold accountable um, because it's really hard to see, especially when you're triggered, when your uh, amygdala is activated, it's really hard to see your biases in action, um, but it's a lot easier for someone else to see them. For sure. Love that. Now that we've gone through the phases of emotion processing, I want to highlight that we're not always going to have the time and space to go through these with kiddos. That sometimes if you're trying to get out the door to go to work, you might not have the time to go through all of this and that's okay. Yeah, you don't have to do this all the time. The idea is you do it as often as you remember, as often as you have the time, as often as it benefits the group. And the more frequently I think you do it, the more it becomes a habit or routine for a kiddo to start, and for you, but to start feeling something and be able to go through these steps. That if we are consistently doing it as often as we can, then it will become a habit for them to feel something recognize it, tap into a coping strategy, find their calm, and then problem solve. That it does become habitual. And if it's part of a classroom culture or a family culture, then it becomes second nature to everyone. And you don't have to be the person coaching everybody every time. Um, for example, in I had a mixed-age preschool classroom, so um, 2.9-year-olds and the 5-year-olds. And um, one day I saw one of my five-year-olds leave dramatic play and hide behind the easel. Um, to me, I could see his, his facial expression. He looked sad. Um, something went on. And before I had the chance to approach him to find out more, um, one of my three-year-olds approached him first. And went right up to the, you know, it, you know, maybe my memory is exaggerating things, but it felt like my five-year-old is a whole foot taller than my <laughs> 
And this little person is looking up at this bigger kid and asking, are you sad? And the five-year-old just looked back at him, nodded his head and smiled and then said, yeah. And he went back to playing after that. So you don't even necessarily need to go through every single step every single time. Sometimes just that, um, that recognition is enough for somebody to be able to, to move on. I think you just brought up such an important point here when we're doing recognition that we are working on empathizing with the feeling, not providing sympathy. So it's not, there's no, well, at least, or, well, I saw you run and fall. Looks like you got hurt. Told you not to run in the house, right? Like we're not, it's not a time where we're providing that like, but. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a lesson. It's not a teaching time. It really is like, um, it really dropped the storyline. It doesn't matter if you think they should be having the feeling or not. The idea is that they're having the feeling. You've definitely had that feeling as well. So it's the same, same situation. Like I see what you're feeling because I have experienced what you're feeling. Not because, not for the same reason, but the feeling itself, this human emotion is what um, allows me to see you and for you to feel seen by me. I love it. We empathize with a feeling, not a behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can change. Actually, it was in one of my Tiny Humans Big Emotions groups this week. And uh, we start off by going around and sharing, like, how was the last month? Because we do it, we, we meet once a month. How was the last month? Like, what you put into play? How did it feel? What felt comfortable? What felt uncomfortable? What was hard to put into play? All that jazz, kind of like a touch point here. And a parent shared, she was like, I was really working on trying to bring empathy to the table and empathize with my kid. And she's like, what I noticed is when I did and my tone matched what I wanted to say and uh, that I really truly like hit empathy like on the head here, like nailed it. Uh, she was like, I saw a totally different response from my kid that like she melted into me or she was able to process there was connection there. Um, And it's an important thing to note, I guess, too, that like tone plays a role. You can say the right words, quote unquote, but with a different tone. And we've all been there, right? Like even as adults, uh, my Zach can say exactly what I want him to say, but if he does it with the wrong tone, I'm like, you didn't even mean that. You're just saying it to say it because you think it's what you're supposed to say. And the tiny humans can feel that too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. it. Well, and 
then you also mentioned something earlier about the butt. So saying like, oh, I, I can see you feel sad. All right, so you named it. But we really have to go right now. Or I'm going to be late for work if we don't go right now. That, the knowledge that you're going to be late if you don't go right now has nothing to do with that feeling and processing that feeling. Like that information doesn't help the child process the emotion. So it's not going to get you anywhere. You're just kind of narrating what you want to happen in that case. But instead, if you hear yourself say the word, but, take a step back and go for a little validation. So that's that. That's the empathy, I think, Alyssa, that you're trying to get here is that like, um, it doesn't matter what's next, right? So this is, you're having this feeling and that's hard. So like, I could offer you a hug right now. And I have been so surprised throughout my career that even if I was the reason that this child is flailing around on the ground right now because I had some kind of a boundary or I have some kind of expectation that, that is causing this big emotion, even if I say, oh, I see that you're sad. And instead of saying what I want to happen, I say, would you like a hug? That's a hard one. They say yes. <laughs> like, I was like, well, I have no idea. I'm going to offer. That's what I want somebody to offer me, even if they just like piss me off, right? I mm -hmm. like if they offer me a hug, I'm going to take it. Yeah, that feels good when I feel that way. Like especially if it was the person that's doing something I don't like. It's it sends the message that like we can disagree about this, but we can still love each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just brought up something that I think too is so important that you said if, if they're responding to you holding a boundary. So when we're going through this process, it doesn't necessarily mean that because they are having a hard feeling about it, that you're going to change the boundary. Right? Like they might be really disappointed that they have to stop playing to come to dinner. It doesn't mean we're not going to have them stop playing to come to dinner. That rule might still be in place and you might still enforce that. Mm -hmm. And they might have a hard feeling about it. All those things can be true. They're like, they're not happy that this is happening and we're going to follow through with it. Um, my nephew, I think I shared this on one of the episodes, I'll do it again. My nephew was at a Halloween party and there was like a grab bag where he got to grab something out of it. And he'd seen some kids go already. So he knew some of the things that were in there and he had an expectation. There was something he wanted, but you couldn't see, you just reached and you grabbed and he got something and it wasn't what he wanted. And he turned to my sister-in-law and said that he was disappointed because he wanted the ghost and he got the bat or whatever it is. And she didn't switch it out. He didn't end up getting the thing that he wanted. They processed the emotion and then he ended up moving on. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily give them the thing that they wanted. I think it also relates to privilege. I'm not sure that, that this is a, a problem among people of all races and cultures. Um, I see it, it very focused in um, white families. And um, we want our children to be happy. We want them to have what they want. And um, most, I believe studies show that most parents want their children to have more than they had um, or that they currently have. Um, but, but we really do need to be aware of this. So what's the message that we're sending to our children? You get to have everything you want, especially if you feel something negative when you don't have it, right? So that's, that is even directly related to coping strategies versus coping mechanisms. So giving it to them right away is actually a coping mechanism. Um, but a coping strategy is giving them a tool to move through that feeling of disappointment so that they might not feel as disappointed next time because they know what to do when that feeling arises. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And yeah, I think privilege is an important thing to note here that um, I was with friends recently and this little girl didn't want to go. They were skiing. We were at the house and we were going to go skiing and she didn't want to go. But afterwards, they were going to the pool over at the ski lodge and she wanted to do that. But the whole thing was like, you can either stay here with the people that are going to be in the house 
or you can go to the ski lodge and you don't have to ski. You can sit, you can, I think they were actually sledding or whatever, but you don't, you don't have to partake in that. You can just be with them and then go swimming or you do none of that and you stay home with the people who are staying home. But the like staying home until it's time to swim isn't a choice. And so she's like, no, 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 this whole thing. Like, I'm not going, I'm not going, I don't want to do that, but I want to swim, but I want to swim. <laughs> so people started to like talk about like how they were going to make this happen. And I was like, nope. And I stepped in, I was like, here are the things, sister, you don't have to sled, but if you want to swim, you got to go. I'm to bring you over. This is what's happening. And we could have, everybody could have adjusted their, plans to make that happen and you don't have to <laughs> right like that's the kicker here is that like you don't have to and maybe like you said like sending that message of you can just have whatever you want if it's if you're having a hard feeling about it maybe that's not the message we want to be sending mm -hmm. and it, I think if most people reflect on adults that they felt safe with when they were children um, normally those memories are associated with adults who followed through with the expectations that they set for us and um and were willing to work with us maybe there was a little wiggle room where it was logical or uh mm -hmm. but um but there is safety in expectations that are followed through on yeah absolutely i think when we if we think about it as like if kids know that we are at the end of the day going to call the shots and make sure that they're safe, then they have the freedom to go and take risks and explore because they know if they were going to do something that was too risky, we would step in. I'm not going to let you run into the street, right? Because you might get hit by a car. I will let you climb the monkey bars and that they expect us to gauge that for them. And it gives them the freedom to explore when we do. Um, I noticed, I've noticed in recent years, um, talking with parents and even my own experience with anxiety, that um, I almost accidentally, as I was describing a child's behavior to his mom, um, described that the child was feeling worried often about the potential of feeling worried. Mm. And it clicked for me that that's what anxiety is, feeling worried about the potential of feeling worried. So, um, <laughs> Oh, I disagree. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> For in that, with that lens, if that is, yeah. if that's true, um, it helps in order to identify the original feeling of worry. Because in, in reality, the thing you're afraid of isn't happening right now. Mm -hmm. But if I can uh -huh. identify that I'm worried about the potential of being worried, then I can reduce my anxiety level <laughs> by a lot. Right. Even for children too. Are you worried that he's going to take your toy? Even though somebody might not even be about it. I understand. Toy, yeah. They're just worried that the child is going to take the toy. Because maybe at some point in the past, a kid took that toy and now they're like prepping for it. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe that child did it every day for a while. The teachers are helping them not do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And they aren't doing it anymore. But the pattern already, like the anticipation of that already exists in that neural pathway. Yeah, interesting. I was thinking of it as like, like for me, I was afraid, like the, the core of my anxiety came back to being raped. And so I was afraid that that would happen again, mm -hmm. right? And that I wasn't physically safe. Yeah. And then I had a therapist who was like, yeah, it might. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and she was like, and in the same way that you didn't do anything to make it happen the last time, you won't do something to make it happen this time. And you can't necessarily do something to make sure it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So you can spend all these days feeling worried in these spots that it might happen again, mm -hmm. or we can figure out ways for you to not go through life like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I choose the latter. <laughs> but for me, it wasn't necessarily like worried about being worried. It was worried about not being safe. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I have noticed in, in this intensive parenting research that that was the whole Washington Post interview was about this Cornell research, 
75% of the group researched uh, agreed that intensive parenting is the way to go here and that that's the best for our kids. And what it, I think it's leading to is this spike in anxiety in parenting where we're so worried that we're not going to do it perfectly mm-hmm. and that these kids are going to end up with the same crap that we have. <laughs> and they might have some of it. The anxiety of them, potential, you're worried about them potentially having the stuff that you have. It's not happening right now. Right. They don't have it right now. Mm-hmm. And your anxiety about it, not a helpful way to approach this. So how do we break that down and get to a place where for me, like using the five phases of emotion processing is how I, I am confident that our kiddos one day, if I'm using this, will have the tools to navigate what I didn't have the tools to navigate until later. And for me, that is the answer that like, I might have a tiny human who is also raped someday. And I don't get to control that. But what I can control is the toolbox that they have that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And that means I want them to know how to process these hard things now mm-hmm. while they're with us, right? And so that down the road, they have those tools to tap into. I think that really is the key. It's not that they are always happy or always have what they want or that they're not whining or tantruming or whatever. I want them to do that right now mm-hmm. so I can help build their toolbox for what to do with that feeling. Absolutely. And right now, you know, when we are together, when children are young, the things that we're helping them process are really not that big a deal. And they're, and for us, it's not that big a deal. So that's great practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then when it is a big deal, they know how to process that feeling. And then they trust us to come to mm-hmm. us and help them process it rather than try to do it alone. Yeah, that's huge. I love that. I love that so much. Lauren, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Thanks for creating this with me. So for those of you who maybe missed this memo, we made these five <laughs> phases of emotion processing up. These are created by us and they're part of the SEP method. It helped guide the SEP method and we have a book that is in the works right now that we will keep you posted on. If you want to know when that book comes out or you want to learn more about the SEP method, or if you'd like to have Lauren and I come present or speak at um, a whole range of places or things, we have a website where you can get in contact with us about that or join uh, an email list that'll let you know when the book is up and running. You can go to SEP cepmethod.com to learn more and to dive in more deeply. And you can also just shoot us an email there uh, if you want to hang out with us. Uh, Lauren, where else can people connect with you? Oh, well, I, um, my consulting business is called Engage, Live Life with Emotion and Intelligence. And um, I can be found on Facebook through that venue. Yeah, we can, we'll link it in the blog post for this episode too. If you go to seedandso.org slash phases of emotion processing, you will be able to access the blog post and Lauren's Facebook group will be linked there as well, along with the SEP method. Thanks so much, dude. I love working with you. Thank you, ditto. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, 
is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 